one-year timescale or a century timescale or, or indefinite timescales. But for me, it means the utilisation of resources in a way that they renew themselves uh, quick, quickly enough that they have perpetuity. They will continue to exist. Not overuse of resources so that you run out of, of things when you then need them later. When you say resources, do you mean like fuel, coal, all that stuff? Biomass, biodiversity, um, minerals, fertilizers, everything. In our current trajectory, do you think, what year would you say the world is going to basically go into chaos? Because Australia is trying to go for net zero by 2050. And for me, it's a long time, but are we, I don't think we're doing enough. So, question back to you is, when should we hit net zero by, and for what reason? Well, net zero, it's going to take time. Our infrastructure has to adapt. I mean, look at Sydney right now. Our power shortage is is insane. Power prices are crazy as well. So, I kind of think the government didn't really think this through, because they're supposed to build the infrastructure before they turn off the power plants. What a really innovative idea. Are you suggesting that the last 10 years of Liberal governments failed to implement an energy policy? I guess. Yeah, I think you yeah. were right. Yeah, You should never get to this point. Um, in effect, by analogy, Australia has been running as fast as it could to the edge of a cliff, jumped off the edge of the cliff, and then said, we really should have a parachute. <laughs> but it forgot to pack a parachute. Yeah, It didn't strategize for the circumstances it finds itself in. And it's it's neglect we should have had a policy now this isn't new the federal governments before you were born were told that there would be a need to cut emissions and that by cutting emissions you'd have to transition from fossil fuel based energy to renewables so this isn't new this has been known for 20 years it's just we some people were in denial and some people chose not to take it seriously and some people who took it very seriously forgot to influence the decision-making. Yeah. Well, in a larger scale from Australia, do you believe that the world's attitude towards environmental sustainability is enough to, keep, to help save the planet? Yeah, people get very excited about saving the planet. I think the planet will be fine. To what degree it can sustain our current lifestyles or our economic system or how humans um, inhabit the planet, that's a much more sophisticated question. But the planet we find, Um, the cockroaches are not going to take over the planet by 2050. (laughs) But there are certainly consequences of climate change, uh, which is the area I know most about, that lead to outcomes where parts of the planet really are not inhabitable. I don't know if you've seen the data that's coming out of India and Pakistan recently on the heat waves. Um, It's been getting truly extraordinarily hot in parts of India and Pakistan at temperatures that are basically, you can't survive for significant periods of time. Um, So the planet will be fine, but there are bits of the planet where lots of people live and in particular the developing world, which has less resilience to climate change, that um, are extremely uh, threatening, threatened by climate change. And, yeah, rich Western countries have at the very least a moral obligation to, to support those countries as best they can. So the planet will change, but it wouldn't affect the planet itself too much? Well, the planet's kind of built of rock and mantle and lithospheres and mm-hmm. um, and a very, very, very big ocean. If, if you look at the Earth's Earth system, it's extraordinarily resilient. That doesn't mean it would sustain life in the way that we think of it. So don't misinterpret me here. I'm not saying everything will be sweet. I'm saying the planet will be fine doesn't say the planet will be fine for humans. Yeah. So you need to narrow that question a little bit from will the planet be okay yeah. to where I live in Western Sydney, is that going to be cool in 2030? No. It'll this, be bloody hot. 
<laughs> just going back, you said Western countries have a responsibility to help other countries that are struggling. I mean, how are we supposed to help others without helping ourselves first? I mean, look at just got like I mentioned before, like our en- we're in an energy crisis. Well, we're not really, um, and so there isn't a shortage of energy in Australia. There's plenty of energy. We export, I think I heard this morning, seven times the amount of energy that Australia needs every year. Wow. So so we are exporting energy in the form of coal, but particularly in the form of gas. And nobody thought in eastern states to reserve any of that gas for domestic consumption. So it's not an energy crisis. It is a failure of policy to ensure energy supply to the domestic market. Western Australia, in contrast, has a system where 15%, I think, of all the gas produced has to stay in Western Australia. And they have no problem with energy. It's just we get, we're selling all ours overseas and then saying, oops, we haven't got any gas. Yeah. How can we like fix this? I mean, obviously our leaders are seeing this. Why aren't they doing anything about it? Why aren't we keeping energy for ourselves? Well, you might have noticed there was a change of government about three weeks ago. Yes. So I think we need to be careful about blaming the government. Yes. Because... Well, I didn't say government. I said leaders. Yeah. I think there's a really interesting question why we've got to this situation. Uh, but I, as far as I can tell, the current federal government is doing everything it can as fast as it can. But it's hard to make change. So, for example, um, there's something called sovereign risk. If you've entered into contracts between Australia and Japan or Australia and Korea and suddenly the Australian government says, we don't want you to fulfill those contracts anymore, that generates sovereign risk, which is very, very bad. Isn't that what we're kind of going through with China right now? Like, mm. uh, like I, I heard in the radio, um, we export $7 billion worth of, I think, what was it, wine to China? And with the Liberal Party not being so friendly, they blocked it, blocked it all off. Uh, exports of wine onto China have been shut off by the Chinese, yes. Yes. So is that a form of... That's uh, not... That's a... Chi- that, so you could argue, I think, that's a sovereign risk for China, a reputational risk to China. But we're losing $7 billion a year. Yeah, but you might recall what China suggested Australia might do in return for us allowing, being allowed to export wine. What would that be? Oh, basically, they didn't. They don't like the Australian democratic system. Interesting. Interesting. So, yeah, depends how much you value democracy. Yeah. But you did ask a really good question. Um, how can Australia help countries overseas if it can't support its own needs? Yeah. And I think that's a very sophisticated question. And. If you accept the evidence around climate change, there's a fundamental principle that you've got to leave the fossil fuels in the ground. Well, so what happens to countries that need energy? And the answer is not giving them our coal. It is investing in those countries around renewables. Interesting. Because um, it's happened a lot in development in the last two or three hundred years, that countries have exported their old technologies for money whilst retaining their new technologies for their own benefit. So what we're actually saying is, should the Western countries who are developing new and innovative ways for renewables provide those to the countries that are most vulnerable to climate change but were least responsible for climate change? Do we have a moral responsibility to help countries that didn't cause climate change but would be most affected by climate change? It's an interesting point. What would you say is the most unsustainable act we do? Uh, in the terms of the planet as a whole, um, burning of coal. Hmm. But then you can nuance that question down to we overfish in many ah, yes. regions we clear land at unsustainable rates Os- many countries lose a huge amount of land a year into the ocean via soil erosion because they don't protect their topsoil plenty of stuff we do that screws stuff up um, yeah. there's solutions to all of those things um, we don't need to mine coal we don't need to lose topsoil we don't need to overfish 
But yeah. why do we do it? Green money and that, of course. Yeah, I mean, if you're a if you're trying to make a bucket of cash short term, catch all the fish you can. If you're trying to sustain an industry, you have to limit what you do. Yeah. And when you limit what you do, you make less money. Of course. Yeah. And in early June 2016, there was a very bad storm for the Narrabeen and Collaroy Beach in northern Sydney. And since then, the Northern Sydney Council have been implementing management strategies to help reduce the erosion that's happening in the beaches that in case we see another storm like that next time what strategies would you recommend the council to do to help reduce erosion in those areas if there was a storm so there's two things causing erosion along the new south Wales coast uh one is sea level rise because that means that the waves that are coming in are hitting further up the beach than they would have otherwise have done. The other thing is there's a fundamental error in having built there in the first place. Yeah. Um, in fact, I was asked yesterday by somebody else, why are we seeing so many more houses flooded? And the answer is partly because we keep building houses on things called floodplains and we're really shocked when floodplains flood you just thought the name would give it away right yeah it's the same as building houses on sand dunes mm. next to the ocean what do you think is going to happen if the ocean yeah. rises and you get a storm and the fundamental problem with protecting those properties with for instance seawalls is if you've ever done any physics, energy must do work. And if you prevent the ocean losing its energy at Collaroy, it will, by necessity, lose its energy somewhere else. So you just mm. transfer the problem. Yeah. So if you build a gorgeous seawall at Collaroy, what you actually do is almost certainly make some other bit of the coast much more exposed to erosion. Yeah. So the solution is not to have the houses there. And so why do people keep building houses there if they know that it's going to get flooded if a storm happens? So what? That, oh, sorry, sorry to interrupt, but and those houses they cost millions as well. It's not like it's like cheap; they're, they're extremely expensive. Yep. But I mean, it comes with a risk. So ah, risk. How likely do you think it is that that house that you build is vulnerable to sea level in the next 50 years? Quite. I would say very. Very. Yes, but you're not buying the houses. Yeah. Right? The people who are buying the houses either can afford it or discount the risk. Mm. Now, perception of risk is a really interesting problem. People discount risk and they also push risk to the future. So the notion of the one in 100 year flood, what everyone believes that, no, what a lot of people believe that to mean is they've got 99 years until they need to worry. But with the climate changing, that's gonna eventually decrease, right? Two issues. First of all, the one in 100 year flood is actually a 1% risk each year. Oh, wow. So you can get three 100 year floods in sequential years. So it's nothing to, it's a misunderstanding. And yes, with climate change, there's something called non-stationarity in risk. Risk is changing. Doesn't mean that everywhere is at higher risk of flooding. Some places will be at lower risk of flooding. Other places are at higher risk of flooding. And it's actually beyond our ability to really nuance where is more at risk or less at risk. But what I can tell you for sure is if you're building houses on floodplains, I can tell you for sure that floodplains flood. Yeah, it's, so it's, it's a good idea name. not to put them there in the first place. Yeah. yeah. Do you think humanity can undo the damage it has done to the planet? I mean, we've been burning coal for like, I don't know how many years. So like, do you think it can be undone? How long have we been burning coal? Not really sure. <laughs> <laughs> so coal started, coal's been mined for heat 
for many hundreds of years, oh, probably wow. thousands of years. Interesting. Oh, wow. But it started to really ramp up at the beginning of the Industrial Revolution yeah. in... Um, 1900s. In, in 1850s oh. kind of thing, or even earlier than that. Um, but it really ramped up in the 1850s. Yeah, we can turn it around. Absolutely. Um, about 20 years ago... I was part of a briefing to government that said you've got to leave the coal in the ground and as you know that had a huge amount of influence or none at all. What we have to do is stop using the fossil fuels and if we did that globally and you left it 50 years or 100 years we'd kind of get back in terms of CO2, emi- uh, CO2 concentrations to kind of where we were. But governments are so reluctant to do that. I mean, obviously, they're always looking for profit. I mean, who isn't at some point? But they're not, like, really interested in transitioning into renewables. Honestly, uh, uh, There's not a problem here in terms of the transition. So if, for example, you're smelting steel and you smelt it using renewables, you will be able to sell that steel at a much higher price than if you're using fossil fuels such that it's actually cheaper to generate steel using renewables than it is coal in the not-too-far-distant future and many other things, right? So the market is transitioning away from the use of fossil fuels. The question is not whether we will do that successfully. The question is on what time scale. And we should have started that 10 years ago or 20 years ago. We didn't. Some countries have much more actively transitioned away from fossil fuels. Some countries are... Of almost net zero now, but wow. th- they're countries that don't export coal and so forth. You stated before that humans had been burning coal for hundreds, if not thousands, of years, and that it only started to ramp up during um, after the industrial revolution. And the thing with fossil fuels is that we can use them, but the thing is, we're using them at a faster rate than they can be replenished. So before the Industrial Revolution, before we used to burn coal at a high rates, would you say that it was dangerous to the planet, us using that coal? No. So you can actually look at the trend in carbon dioxide concentrations um, back over thousands of years using ice cores. You can actually measure the concentration of carbon dioxide in the little in the gaps between the ice in an ice core. And you can see that it was kind of varying within a fairly tight range. And there's very little evidence of any change in that concentration through that very hundreds and hundreds of years where people would have been burning coal for heat. It ramped up when we started using coal for power Mm -hmm. and for smelting of iron at scale. So... The Iron Age forge that was doing some copper didn't have an impact on the atmospheric CO2. Mm. But it it did start to, um, if you've ever seen photographs of northern England during the Industrial Revolution, it was black. It actually changed the evolutionary trajectory of some animals. Oh, wow. So one of the early pieces of evolution showed that as you moved into the Industrial Revolution, a particular species of moth, which happens to be a black variety and a white variety... Yes, yes, I've black, heard of this. The black variety became very common because it was camouflaged mm. yes, against, because the, against uh, the trees. Yes, exactly. Yes. Um, and now we've cleaned up the atmosphere. It's yeah, and the back. suit is going away from the trees. Exactly. Yes. Ah, uh, okay. So... Yeah, and so they were more common because they could hide from predators. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Ah, okay. Um, which is really cool. But yeah. no, the, the, the atmospheric concentrations of CO2 and other greenhouse gases really began to ramp up with the Industrial Revolution mm-hmm. at, when there was a full industrial transformation to mine coal and burn it. But if you stopped mining coal and burning it and you stopped uh, drilling for gas and burning it, we would be able to turn that around. What are some examples of environmental sustainability? Ooh, that's a hard question to answer. I don't really work in environmental sustainability. I kind of work in climate science, which is a very different area. Mm. Um, uh, So I'm probably not the person to talk to about environmental sustainability particularly. So you have to skip to the next question. 
How do you think humanity can achieve undoing the damage that we've already done to the planet? Ah, so that's a terrific question. Um, I mean, at the most simple level, as I mentioned, you leave the carbon in the ground. And if you leave the carbon in the ground and you use renewable wind, um, solar, a couple of other things perhaps, um, if you use those to generate your energy you quite dramatically turn around the problem. And that's now possible. You can, in fact, generate hydrogen from solar or wind. Uh, you can export the hydrogen or you can use it as a replacement fuel. This is not technically impossible anymore. It's a huge change, but that opens up opportunity, right? So most of the kids listening to this podcast, they are the solution. So those that go off and do biotechnology or engineering or law or economics or a whole range of areas are going to have to find the solutions to how to transition from fossil fuels to renewables, which is really cool. And if we made that transition, how, how long would it take for us to fully go from using fossil fuels into renewable energy? How long would that transition take? Uh, almost certainly much less time than we think it would because there's a market advantage to re using renewables. Uh, both your exports become green exports, which are a premium. Um, but, but secondly, it's cheaper. It's much cheaper to source your energy from solar and wind than coal. So you actually can generate things using much cheaper energy, so you can sell things cheaper. And that means you undercut the market for the people who are using coal. And you generate exports that undercuts the countries that are using fossil fuels, and that drives a transition very quickly. So if it's cheaper to use um, renewable energy, would it be better to fully transition into renewable energy or still use a bit of fossil fuels, but not to the extent that we're using right now? Now, you need to leave all the fossil fuels in the ground starting 20 years ago. Oh, okay. So we've happily continued to use fossil fuels for decades longer than we should have done. Yeah. So that's why people now talk about carbon capture and storage to remove carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. How does that work? It doesn't. Okay. Well, what is that, carbon capture and storage? Ca carbon capture and storage is a technology which is supposed to take CO2 from... Um, emissions and hide it deep down underground. Mm. It's very expensive. It's also not at all clear it can be done at scale. So you can certainly do it in a little test case, no problem. But doing it at scale, people don't understand emissions. We're currently emitting about 10 billion tonnes of CO2 a year. Wow. That's a lot. So the kind of carbon capture and storage methods might take out a million tonnes a year or 10 million tonnes. It's not enough. It's not even in the noise. Not nearly enough to actually be part of the solution. The solution isn't to burn fossil fuels and capture the carbon dioxide and hide it. The solution is not to burn the fossil fuels. Is there any way we can use, like from your research, is there any way we can use carbon dioxide as a form of energy or use or like derive the components of carbon and oxygen and use that as some, mm, anything? Not that I know of. No, um, okay. CO2 is pretty stable. Uh, there's not much energy content in it. Yeah, okay. So no, so, I'm not aware of anything like that. I want to transition to into something a bit more different and that's traveling, right? So everyone has an obsession with electric vehicles and um, solar panels and all that stuff, right? What would you say is the most sustainable way to travel? Uh, the train. <laughs> I mean, we can't take a train like to calls every time. So, like, anything oh. else? Uh, so, if you're thinking locally, you can walk, you can bicycle, you can get an e-scooter, um, get an electric car. All of those are much more energy efficient than a vehicle. Uh, but things like mass transit systems, whether it be buses or trains, are much more fuel efficient. Of course. The problem is air travel. Yeah. Um, 
that's where clever strategies to remove CO2 out of the atmosphere are crucial to net zero. So you can't, I don't, I don't think you can get to, to zero emissions. You can get close to zero emissions, but you can't get to zero emissions. Because planes, they're up in the air eight hours at a time. And that requires a massive amount of energy. Like, for example, from Sydney to Singapore, it's around a seven and a half hour, eight hour flight. You can't just run a plane on a battery. Oh, uh, well, you will be able to, but no, you cannot do that at the moment. Mm. So, so we don't have the technology to do that right now? No, 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 not at the moment. Uh, Lots okay. of work are being done into using alternative fuels for air travel. I'm not an expert in that area, to say the least. But if you cut emissions very dramatically and you leave that little bit that you can't cut, there are solutions to getting that little bit out of the atmosphere. You can plant forests. You can um, enhance natural sinks. There's a range of things you can do. And at that level, maybe carbon and capture and storage will get you that last little bit to net zero. But um, I, I agree with you that air travel's hard but, to get I mean, to zero. Can't we like leverage that? I mean, if we go a hundred percent renewable down here on Earth, like our cars, our buildings, our, our transport networks, if we can go one hundred percent sustainable, isn't it still going to be okay if we do use fuel in air? I mean, it'll be very minimal yeah. compared to what we're doing now. Right. So I need to give you a long answer to that question. Go ahead. So I want you to imagine you're lying in a bath and you've got the tap on with water flowing into the bath and the plug is out. And the water's draining down through the plug hole at exactly the same rate as the tap is pouring water into the bath. Yeah? Yes. Yeah, so what happens to the level? So the bath never, it rise, it never rises. It the, stays the same. It stays the same. Right. Now, turn the tap up a little tiny bit. It's going to start to go It starts up. to rise and ultimately overflows the bath. Yeah. doesn't matter how much you turn the tap up, the outcome is the same. You overflow the bath. If you turn the tap up a tiny amount, you have to wait longer, but ultimately you overflow the bath. So what we've done is we've turned up both taps really high, right? So the carbon dioxide level, or the water level, is going up very fast. If you turn one of those taps off and you turn the other one almost down, so there's only a little bit extra flowing in, you still overflow the bath. So it's not true that you can cut emissions by, say, 90%, and then concentrations will drop. They won't. They will continue to increase, but at a much slower rate. What you've actually got to do to reduce the concentrations of CO2 in the atmosphere is you've actually got to get the emissions down below what they'd naturally be. And how would you do that? That's a good question. Yes, that's why we're committed to warming of two degrees. And if we don't dramatically reduce our emissions, we're looking at warming of three and four degrees. That's not good. That's where the problem is. People think that if they halve the emissions, the concentrations would drop. Not true. What happens if you halve the emissions is the rate of the increase slows down. slows down. Right. And that's really important to understand. And it's why when people say, let's get to 50% cuts in emissions, that's necessary but insufficient. In order to transition into renewables, we kind of require non-renewables, like stuff like lithium, right? Like yeah. lithium batteries, that, that's not renewable. So like, is there maybe an offset? Because like, I was sure you could do recycling, but it's not going to be very long lasting. Yeah, I don't know very much about the lithium cycle. Um, I do know that there's a huge value in recycling batteries to recycle the lithium and the cadmium and the other minerals. Um, lithium's really nasty stuff. So there are huge environmental concerns over things like batteries and, and used solar panels. And, and the recycling industry is really just ramping up in those areas now. Um, so you're absolutely right that there are issues with the sustainability of renewables as a consequence of the need for things like lithium. But th there's also awesome research going on around the world to not need lithium. 
that's interesting. Like, how would that work, though? I don't know. I, I need to look into that. That's quite interesting. Yeah, I mean, batteries used to be lead. Yeah. And now the modern battery is lithium-based. Yeah, it's. I guess it, it can hold a higher capacity. C- correct, but there will be something else that's better than lithium. Over it time. Would be really cool if that's something cheap and easily accessible. Yeah. It's much more likely to be something really dodgy. Yeah, I mean, again, just going back to renewables, in order to mine the lithium, we're not really using renewable vehicles, are we? They're all, like, gas-powered, not gas-powered, fuel-powered. So, like, at the end of the day, we're not really renewable, not just yet. There's, like, a lot of factors that, that are, like, nitty-gritty details that you oh, need to... Oh, there's lots of nasty nitty-gritty details. Yeah. Although, on the mining, uh, you might have heard Twiggy Forest yesterday is transitioning his entire mining fleet to battery. Wait, can you repeat that? Yeah, Twiggy Forest, yeah. who is kind of well off, um, billionaire mining magnet, yeah. is transitioning all his mining vehicles to electric. Interesting. That's that's good. Which is really cool. Yeah. yeah. He's also investing massively on the ability to export hydrogen, to generate the hydrogen using solar in Australia and then export the hydrogen. Wait, you could generate hydrogen using solar? Yeah. How does that work? You just need energy to create hydrogen or to separate hydrogen from, say, water. So yeah. to get hydrogen, you just need the energy to split um, the hydrogen off... The oxygen. ...of another chemical. Oh, OK. Whatever the chemical is, oh, okay. right? So you just need energy. Now, if that energy comes from solar, it's green hydrogen. Yeah. And that's, in principle, renewable, which cool. is really cool. Cool. Going back to the example of the bus sub with the plug out (laughs) you said that we can't reach net zero because we will never be able to turn off the bathtub completely but what we can do is reduce the amount of emissions and we can slow down the whole process of using fossil fuels and eventually it will overflow the bathtub will overflow eventually and how but how long would that how long would that process take for the bathtub to overflow? So I didn't say you can't get to net zero. I said you can't get to zero emissions. So the idea is you get close to zero emissions and then you use other technologies to give you net zero emissions. Oh, okay. Right? So you can get to net zero emissions. Mm. And if you get to net zero emissions, then the concentration ceases to increase. So it says constant. Yeah. Oh, there okay. are many natural sinks in the, in the world, vegetation, mm. the oceans, and gradually those would take that s- extra CO2 out of the atmosphere. But it would take millennia. Oh, okay. Um, the idea of carbon capture and storage is you have an artificial way. So, But people are working on clever ways to remove CO2 out of the atmosphere. Um, uh, there's technologies around uh, artificial photosynthesis. So you create chemical reactions that act as if they were plants to remove the co2 cool there's loads of really cool stuff going on right there's ways of creating building materials by um, chemical reactions that utilize co2 there's lots of really cool Mm. stuff going on i'm not an expert in any of those areas but there are really clever engineers and material scientists and so forth working in these areas what would you say is the difference between net zero and carbon neutrality? We've been talking for about net zero for a while now. So what would be the difference between net zero and carbon neutrality? That's a word I've not heard. Carbon neutrality. Well, it's kind of like net zero, but the carbon is like neutral. Like it doesn't really affect, like this carbon being produced, carbon dioxide being produced, but it doesn't really affect climate change. So like we're, like, we're producing carbon, but it doesn't like affect it because it's so minimal. Right. I don't think I care on the grounds we're so far away from either net zero or carbon neutrality. Well, 2050 is a long time. Not to get to net zero, it's not. Okay. It's shockingly soon. And it's 30 years. I, yeah. Go, wh- one of the tricks I always use when somebody says, you've got 30 years to nail something, I go back 30 years and look at the progress we've made and see whether the progress we've made in the last 30 years is anything similar to the progress we need to make in the next 30 years. And on that basis, net zero by 2050 is immensely challenging. Immensely Do you think it's possible, though? Oh, everything's possible, but I don't think it's probable. 
would you say we increased the time frame of 2050 to 2060, 2070? I mean, if we could continue to do this, it's never going to happen, obviously, but like... So, the Paris Agreement says we mu- the highest global warming allowed is two degrees. Where are we at now? Uh, about 1.1. And to get... To meet the Paris Agreement of two degrees as a maximum... You've got to get to net zero by about 2040. So I think we're going to overshoot the Paris two degrees. And people who talk about trying to limit warming to one and a half degrees are courageously optimistic. Um, But two degrees is not the end of the world as we know it. And if you can't get to net zero by 2040, you probably get to 2.1 degrees or 2.2. Two degrees if you went to net zero by 2050 so it's not a catastrophic you see these like one to two degrees what would be the impacts of these inc- like very like slight in- increases yeah they sound like slight increases two degrees in the global average okay yeah well you don't live on the globe well you do but you don't experience the global mean temperature two degrees in the global mean the land heats faster than the ocean so two degrees in the global mean, let's imagine that means two and a half degrees land on the annual time scale. As you go through to look at, say, how much does a two degree in the global mean translate into a heat wave event in Western Sydney, you can find scenarios where it means instead of having four days at 45, you have four days at 50. Oh. Now, that, that's, the, that's where you need to think about what two degrees in the global average means. It doesn't mean anything useful. It's how that is translated into extreme events. And a week at 50 Celsius breaks infrastructure, the trains stop running, people are dying, air conditioners don't work. Catastrophe, right? Well, and we see that in... India and Pakistan. And how close are we to that in a global scale, like 50 degrees? Uh, on the global average, never. Cool. But Certain places. For a heat wave event, for five days or four days in some areas, could happen next summer. Wait, like next summer? Yeah. You hit 48.5 in Western Sydney a couple of years ago. Yeah. Yeah, I remember that. Mm, it was I not good. Mm-hmm. Very hot day. Yeah. No. I think, were we in quarantine when that happened? I think, I remember during quarantine, we were at like a 46 degrees. Yeah, no, no. So days around 46 to 48 degrees are almost unprecedented in the historical record, but are becoming quite common out in Western Sydney. Yeah. Partly because of global warming, but partly because, for reasons I don't understand, massive areas of Western Sydney are being happily built with very dark roofs. Now... The Romans and the Greeks, 2000 BC, built buildings that were white. That's true. To reflect yeah. sunlight. Reflect heat, yeah. You'd have thought yeah. in the last two and a half thousand years we would have figured out <laughs> they knew exactly. something. So it's catastrophic that huge areas are being developed with highly absorbent sunlight roofs in western Sydney, and it's not just the roofs like if you look at normal house colors it's like it's like a gray trend every house is like a darker color mm. makes it look good but in the long term it's not very nice well you have to pay for the energy don't you to keep it yeah cold. To get air, co- air yeah. color it's nice in winter it's freezing cold <laughs> quite recently so it's nice in winter um yeah so there's a lot you can do to minimize the risk of 50 degrees out in western sydney that's not related to emissions and there were attempts in the New South Wales government to try to legislate brighter roofs uh, that I don't think is continuing I don't think it's stuck I, I think it stopped okay because the um, developers said it was more expensive to build with light roofs how go ask a developer <laughs> I mean might. clearly the the two things you should build with light materials to keep the heat down and actually there shouldn't be roofs being built today that are not solar collectors yeah you can actually tesla did this five years ago you could build a roof that was a solar panel yes yes i saw that I was, this, this, that was actually my next question like 
like from the ground it looks like a normal roof but if you go up you can literally see the solar cells i mean it doesn't make the house look bad it looks amazing huh? and like the surface area of a roof is quite large mm-hmm. so like you're using every single spot and that's more than enough to power your home so all your devices tvs whatnot and you'll also have so much excess you could like power your electric vehicle or sell it into the grid or sell it into the grid yeah, yeah. Yeah, it would make sense, wouldn't it? Yeah. yeah. Why isn't that a mandated? Like, every house must come, that that are built recently, must have solar panels. Are you asking me as a scientist? Or, I mean, the answer as a scientist is, it should be. In, like, like a normal person. Like, you would think, right? Totally. I, th- I think maybe some people might not like the idea of having solar panels on their roof. I mean, it's amazing when you think about all the benefits, but some people might find it ugly, so... I think that well, might be one of the is, reasons. They find their power bills more ugly at the moment. Yes, yeah. And like the Tesla's um, cell uh, roof. I think that's what they call it. Cell roof, then? Not sure. Not sure either. Um, let's just call it a cell roof for it, this it purpose. It adds cost to the building of the building. Yeah, right? yeah. But, so, if you can't afford to buy a house and houses go up by 10000 it doesn't matter what it's made of, right? You can't afford to buy it. What people can think about is if you build a house with a Tesla roof, yeah, it might cost you ten thousand dollars more. But your power but bills like you, drop. You pay that extra ten k off in five years. So I put solar mm. panels on my roof. I was told it would take ten years to pay off the investment, and it took about five. Yeah, oh, wow. yeah, and, that and now they're free. So yeah. it's a better long term. Oh yeah, yeah. Like we recently got like at my house, my uh, father installed solar panels. I think it was like ten thousand, eight thousand ish. Like, like I don't, like we have so much excess energy, like we're selling it off to the grid, hmm. and like that helps with the re- whole renewable stage, you know, transitioning. I mean, if we have excess, why not give it back to the grid? Let others instead of using coal power to power their homes, we're using solar. I've also heard that you can use that excess energy at night time. At night time, yeah, when the sun's not there. Yeah. Yeah, like you'll so store you can, the battery. Yeah. yeah, because if you get lots of energy in the morning from the sun, from the solar panels, and you, if you can't use all of it in the morning, then you can save some of it to use it at night. I think yeah. you'd need a battery to yeah. do that. Yeah. And there's Tesla batteries. They cost like 5K, but they're massive. They are like truly massive. Yeah, so you then come back to that discussion about sustainability of how you build those batteries. Yeah. Listen. So the way that... that I think a lot of people are now thinking about it is you don't necessarily have batteries in your home. You have batteries in the suburb in the suburbs that you charge and then draw energy back from later in the day. Dubai's done that. Car. Dubai's done that. Um, there's this city in Dubai. It is 100% like carbon neutral. All its energy is derived from solar. I mean, it's in Dubai. It's a whole desert, right? <laughs> Even the water is recycled. Like, it is astonishing. And the house designs, it's not dark. It's all, like, light colours. There's trees. And like, it is absolutely stunning. Like, we need to do that on a larger scale. Yes, it was very expensive. It was, like, quite expensive. But if we can, like, try to make materials cheaper and labour and... Not labour, like, make manufacturing cheaper, it would be quite good. It is indisputable that Australia's future economy will not be dependent upon the export of coal and you would have thought that we would have been preparing for that the sad fact is we were not preparing for that at a federal level but we were at a state level there were really quite impressive policies coming out of various states so we're not in as bad a position as we thought we were but we're in a much worse position than we might have been Western Australia, so like the mid, um, not Western Australia, the middle of Australia is just a desert, isn't it? Like, it's like nothing. Well, you tried telling the people who live there that. Well, of course, <laughs> with like all due respect, right? There's a lot of desert and a lot of area. Why do we plant solar panels and like, export it? Uh, so the answer to that question is when you export power, you. Not lo- just export, like use it for ourselves as well. Y- you lose energy in transmission and. It's extremely expensive to build high-voltage transmission lines from here to the deserts, right? Yeah. What you, and you don't even need to do that. If you think about areas that have been mined, the coal mines, 
the area available across the Hunter Valley that's been trashed by mining, if you replace that with wind and solar... Solar farm. ..you get such a lot of energy from just doing that. Yeah, you'll need some other... Infrastructure. Infrastructure. But what's happening is huge solar investment is going into the places where there used to be coal-fired power for the very simple reason that the transmission lines exist already. What, like, for, like if you look at, the, like, you mine the coal, right, and the amount of energy it's producing, would it, with solar panels and um, wind turbines, would it, like, be less than the coal, or would it be more, or would it be similar, or what would you say? The, 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 there's real problems with coal-fired power. Uh, you can't turn it on and off. Um, it takes days to ramp up a coal-fired power station. You can't just sort of switch it on. Yeah. Uh, you can obviously produce more energy from solar than you can from coal-fired power stations, but it does require the uh, solar panels at scale. Yeah. But not ridiculous. They're very. They've become quite efficient. Um, so mm. it's entirely possible to fuel Australia totally with renewables, but you've got to invest a lot of money in the transmission lines. Cool. Going back to the Paris Agreement, you were saying that some people thought that the two degrees maximum should be reduced to one and a half, and you were saying that that's very courageously optimistic. What would you say are some good environmental sustainability initiatives and goals? So I did say that the, it was courageous to think about one and a half degrees, not because I think there's anything wrong with one and a half degrees. I think, to be clear... As the planet warms by one and a half degrees, there are countries that will cease to exist. Oh, wow. There are Pacific islands where the sea level rise um, committed to by one and a half degrees will cease to mm. be viable. So one and a half degrees is catastrophic. Uh -huh. But unfortunately, it's too late to stop that. Um, mm. So it's a bit like driving up the freeway at 110, seeing someone stopped in front of you thinking about whether you should break and thinking about it and thinking yeah. about it and when you're two metres away and you're still travelling at 110 thinking oops, I should stop yeah. <laughs> it's too late. too late but it's not too late to avoid two degrees hmm. and the sorts of projects that get you close to two degrees is decarbonisation of economies and very big investment in export of renewables to countries that can't otherwise provide their energy so the killer for one and a half degrees is places like China, India, hmm. um, Indonesia, huge countries don't have the money to switch from fossil fuels to renewables or they don't perceive they do. That requires investment because it's catastrophic to the whole planet if those countries develop based on fossil fuels. So you think two degrees is a sustainable goal? I think two degrees isn't impossible. Hmm. But it's not sustainable. How do you mean sustainable? Like, the, obviously, at 1.5, it's catastrophic. So For two, some places. Yeah, for two would be worse, right? Yeah. Right. Yeah. So my, no, this is my last question to you. How can, would an individual help make a difference in climate change? What can we, as citizens of this globe, do to help save us, essentially? So, several things. First is reduce your carbon footprint. Um get your parents to put solar panels on their roofs maybe batteries that's a bit more arguable um, begin to think about transitioning to EVs and use public transport to the extent possible or ride a bike or walk so your own personal carbon footprint um, eat less meat that that hurt yeah I love meat I love it yeah sorry about that that's all good um I said less less meat, not no not meat. No meat, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm hedging. Um, <laughs> so reduce your own carbon footprint. footprint. Next thing you can do is lobby politically for more action on climate change. That's suddenly become much easier after the last election. Yeah. Uh, the third thing you can do, for most people probably listening to this podcast, the single biggest thing you can do is educate 
yourselves, go to uni, study something valuable, and think about how whatever you're learning about can help at a larger scale solve the climate change problem. So education is key. It's really important because, you know, if you leave school and have no understanding of how you can contribute to solving climate change, you are less useful in that context than if you go off and do a degree that directly is associated with part of the problem. And that's almost anything, right? It's not that you've got to do science. Cool. I've been to... Uh, artistic exhibitions where people have been using art to communicate climate change, almost anything. But think of your careers through, in part, a lens of climate change. Mm, and that yeah. can be very powerful. Well, that's me. Malik, you got any other questions for the professor? No, that's it. Thank you very much, Professor Andy. My welcome. You're very welcome. It. This is probably one of... Like this was re- this was a really good episode. There was so much information and there was so much detail. Professor, thank you so much for coming on the show. We really appreciate it. You're very yeah, welcome. Thank you. Thank you.